Well, take your Bibles and find your way to the letter of 1 John, which was just read to us. While you're finding your way there, I just want to um, brag a little bit on this church family and say thank you specifically to uh, the tech team um, for their tireless efforts. Uh, This is the team that doesn't want any attention drawn to them, but I just think it's worthwhile for us to, from time to time, give thanks for the people that are working behind the scenes. The tech team are the people that you don't know until something goes wrong. And uh, then everybody looks at them with scowling eyes and furrowed brows, like, do your job better. Um, But folks, I just wanted to remind us, um, these folks are behind the scenes working week after week, uh, embracing the stress and the pressure of entering into a ministry that, again, nobody realizes until something goes wrong. So uh, if you have a chance to uh, to give your words of thanks to uh, team members, I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. Another sign of God's gracious provision uh, to this church family, how, um, really, just think about it, how many gifts were already at work this morning in this church family for us to do this together? Uh, what a blessing. What a grace of God. Uh, just good to set our, our, our attention on all the good things that God is doing. First John chapter 5. Today we will conclude our expository sermon series in John's first letter. And the aim of the sermon is going to walk us through John's concluding statements. We find them there in the passage that Laura read for us, beginning in verse 13, down to the end of the letter, which takes us to verse 21. And we finally come to the purpose statement that we've referenced numerous times in this series together. We find it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, that purpose statement in 1 John 5.13 is very similar, a little different, but very similar to the Apostle John when he wrote in his Gospel. Not to be confused with his letter, but in the Gospel. In the Gospel, he, his purpose statement was, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You can see those two purpose statements. The difference is the Gospel is calling people to know Jesus as Savior, In his letter, he is encouraging and exhorting people to have confidence in Jesus as Savior. So one is calling people to know Christ. The other is giving assurance to people who claim Christ. And that's what we've been looking at in John's first letter here in this epistle. Um, I'd like to give us just a quick word of clarification about the assurance that John is offering about eternal life in this letter. Uh, Assurance, right? That word... Um, I don't know what comes to mind, but oftentimes we'd like to think of assurance as being kind of some, um, uh, some sort of satisfactory assurance to convince us of something that is true. Um, so the assurance that is offered in this letter might hit us a little, little differently than expected. Uh, for instance, if you sang a solo uh, here to the church today, I know some of you just would rather crawl under the, the chair and die than do that, but just imagine that you sang a solo this morning for this group of people. Uh, what kind of assurance would you want to hear to convince you that you did well? Maybe you'd want people to praise you for your, vo- for your voice. Maybe you'd want people to tell you how much they appreciated you singing and how eager they are to hear you do it again. You'd want these emotional words of support to assure you that you had done well, perhaps. We might call this an emotional support type of assurance. But this positive emotional support to reinforce something in our lives is not the way John goes about giving assurance of eternal life in his letter. He doesn't give positive emotional support to assure his readers that they have eternal life. Instead, he gives objective truth. He gives objective tests. And these tests function as tools to give God's people assurance. 
And as readers, we're meant to take these tests and then apply them to ourselves. We're meant to assess ourselves in the light of the truth in the test found in 1 John. So by the way, that's, very, that's what's much better than the emotional support method of assurance. Objective truth tests are not held hostage then by our emotions. Um, uh, the objective truth tests are objective, right? They're not subjective. They're asking questions about this, like what do you believe? What do you confess? How do you live? Do you love? Those are some of the objective truth tests that John has offered in his letter. That's different than a subjective test. How do you feel? That's how, how our, our world a lot of time functions. In fact, sometimes we talk about the way we think with the words feel, just in, in back and forth conversation in our day. We're like, well, how do you feel about that? And then what we listen to is people tell us how they think. But John wants us to be thinking a specific way about eternal life, and he gives us objective truth tests in order for us to, to discern that. So um, these positive emotions that sometimes we want in assurance aren't bad. Uh, certainly they're enjoyable, but they're not necessary. For instance, is it possible for a Christian in a dark emotional place to have assurance of eternal life? Well, the biblical answer would be yes. It is possible for sad Christians to have confidence in eternal life. And that is because of the truth, the test, the objective um, t- truth that, that John gives us here in First John. So, Really, the main idea of this closing section is the purpose statement found in verse 13. Sorry, I don't have anything more original, but I I can't improve on that. You find it there in verse 13. It's so explicit. The main idea is to give God's people confidence in eternal life. That's the main idea. And I'm drawing that directly from verse 13. And so I'm going to make that verse 13 really the first point of the sermon. Christians can know they have eternal life. Number one, Christians can know they have eternal life. We can know this. He says that explicitly in verse 13 when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God for this purpose, that you may know that you have eternal life. But go ahead and keep glancing through verses 13 to 21 and see how many times you can find the word know in that section. It comes up numerous times. It appears in verse 13. I just read that. It appears twice in verse 15. It shows up again in verse 18, again in verse 19, and two more times in verse 20. So, seven times in this span of verses, John keeps coming back to this, here's what we know, here's what we know, here's what you know. And the older I get, the more I realize how little I know. Are you like that? Or do you ever feel like it's hard to know anything for certain in our world? I mean, really, just think about our present geopolitical environment. It's full of certain uncertainty. I mean, we've got conspiracy theories flying around. We've got experts that are disagreeing with one another. Do you ever feel like you're in the middle, like, I don't know who to believe or what truth is there out there anymore? How do we know anything, right? Or we have a phrase that is often used to describe um, uh, life these days where it talks about how you can know, you know, that's your truth, right? Instead of it's the truth, it's that's your truth, as if we've got all different versions of truth that we can live in accordance with. Eternal life is not like that. Eternal life is not a religious conspiracy theory. Eternal life is something that John is writing so that we can know with certainty that we have it. And so I'm starting this section of the sermon by emphasizing the centrality of what Christians know to invite us back into the quiet waters and the green pastures of God's objective truth and to let that calm our hearts again. In a world where the phrase, your truth, is is thrown around, like I said before, it is, it is wonderful to know that God has given us something much better, the truth, the way, and the life, the Apostle John writes about it, describing Jesus, his person, and his actions. 
The assurance of eternal life that Christians are offered is anchored in the divine identity in the person of Jesus Christ. So then, John continues with his campaign of assuring us with knowledge as he continues to write in these closing remarks. And as we keep reading about the assurance that he's giving, we start to understand that confidence in eternal life breeds confidence in other areas of the Christian life. You might wonder, well, what areas does it breed confidence in? John turns to one of those areas as he talks about confidence in prayer. So not only can Christians know they have eternal life, which, by the way, um, for me to make a case to, to develop verse 13, that's what he's been doing this whole letter. Okay? That, that would be the, our expository sermon series on 1 John. Okay? So if you are new to our series and you're thinking, yeah, but prove to me that I can know that I have eternal life, I would encourage you to read the letter of 1 John, and if you want more introduction, more explanation of that, then, re- then listen through the sermons in our expository sermon series on 1 John. Um, but what he's doing here in verse 13 is he's summarizing everything he's written and he's pointing us to this truth. You can know this. You can know this. Now he turns to one of the areas that then builds with confidence. Since you know that you have eternal life, what is an area that uh, the Christians then experience confidence in? Number two, Christians can pray with confidence. Christians can pray with confidence. The truth, if truth was a river, it's flowing from verse 13 into verses 14 and 15 and following. He says in this, in verse 14, and this is the confidence, which by the way are just a different way of saying you can know something with certainty. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So in other words, since a Christian is confident they have eternal life, they can pray confidently. Verses 14 and 15 are meant to encourage us as Christians to engage in prayer as an outflow of our confidence in eternal life. Uh, The confidence of knowing you have eternal life gives a Christian confidence in prayer because John is describing the Christian life as as a one of confidence. Does that surprise you? How would you describe your relationship with prayer? Does it seem more of like wish dreams, wishful thinking? Like, God, I'm kind of giving you this wish, like, like somebody sings, you know, happy birthday to you and you kind of close your eyes before you blow out the candles and you utter a wish in your mind and you blow out the candles. In some ways, prayer is just kind of a religious version of that. It doesn't seem very confident, does it? John here is talking about confidence that we have before God in our praying then. Well, if your idea of praying is more of like wish dreaming, then these words will be very life-giving to us. The key to understanding these promises of verses 14 and 15 is the phrase, you can find it there, according to his will in verse 14. So however we understand verse 14, we need to make sure we don't think of this as a blank check where we get to turn God into our personal butler. That is not the God of the scriptures, nor is that the promise that is given in these verses. Answers are assured inasmuch as we pray according to God's will. That's why that phrase is there in verse 14. It's very important. So we need to remember then as we discuss prayers that these kind of verses can be terribly misunderstood and misapplied. And often that is done in this kind of health and wealth gospel that is popular in our age. Somebody will read a verse like this and say, man, that just sounds like a name it and claim it promise verse. And you just need to believe God to take it and then trust that he's going to do it. He's going to visualize the answer and it will come true to you. That, folks, that is not Christianity. That is like modern day mystical self-helpism. What about the martyrs that were praying for deliverance as they were led to the stake? Or what about that verse there? Or what if you have, I know this is a silly illustration, but 
Um, I, it stuck with me over the years. I heard it in seminary, I think. What if you have two Christian boxers entering the arena at the same time and they're both praying this? God, let me win. What's God's going to do now? He's got to let one of them down, right? Only one guy can win. Only one person can win the boxing match. I'm just drawing attention to the ways that our, our modern minds can quickly twist a verse like this into making it into a blank check where God turns into our personal butler. That is not what is happening here. Some of the influences in our day are described by a philosopher named Charles Taylor. Some of you have heard of him. He describes something called imminent frame and buffered self. I know these are kind of heady words, but we live in a culture of, of what these ideas are. These ideas, this imminent frame is the idea that the world is as a completely natural order without anything supernatural. And you're like, well, we're Christians. We don't believe in that. We're sitting here on a Sunday listening to a sermon, silly. Of course we believe in the transcendent. But sometimes we're affected by this idea of we just live in the world as it is here because we think about prayer like, why even bother? The world is just kind of, un, kind of going on as it goes. It's kind of unraveling as it goes. Natural order is in place. You know, the laws of, of nature are in place. We're just kind of existing in it. Why even pray? We can get influenced by that. Another way that we're influenced by popular um, culture is this idea of buffered self. Again, these are Charles Taylor's terms to describe what's hap- what, he, what was observing, being observed around him. And I think you'll, under- you'll you realize that it's happening around us all the time. It's where in our modern society, people believe there is no transcendent or supernatural order outside of ourselves, which means that we, myself, I determine who, what I am and who I will be. And so therefore, if prayers, if the answers to our prayers don't align with how we think they should be, how I define it, then why even bother? God's let me down. God has given me what, we, what, what I wanted, so why even pray? Because I'm praying that God would do this. It seems like a good thing. I can't understand what reason in the world there could possibly exist for God not to answer my prayer. So therefore, but friends, what we've just done is we, because we can't understand a possible reason why something wouldn't be in accordance with God's will, we therefore think that there must not be a reason. But friends, we've just removed God's godness then. If God could never disagree with you, if he could never have a reason that is, that is beyond your comprehension, that is a mystery to your even wildest imagination, then God's lost his godness. We've just pulled him down and made him into our peer that we can judge directly. So I said all of that to make sure that we don't think praying is asking and receiving according to our will. That's what I want to clarify here. We can hear words, pray according to God's will, and we're like, yeah, of course. But then when, when it, it strikes against our will, then we start to be full of, we're full of doubt and confusion and dismay and we, beget, we begin to be disillusioned with this idea of Christianity and praying in God entirely. Friends, what happens is, what, what, what this text is giving us confidence in is praying in accordance with God's will. John's argument is brilliant. Look at verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. He's tying confidence in eternal life with confidence in prayer. Because if you have confidence in eternal life, that means you are a child of God. I should actually rephrase that. You could be confidently wrong with the wrong tests. So if you have confidence in eternal life based upon the tests offered in 1 John, okay? then you can be confident that you're born of God and God listens to his children. That's what he's saying. God listens to his children. The confidence you have of being heard is not something you conjure up on your own. 
It's not through some track record that you accrue. It's not through some, like you've put in enough tokens of good behavior in the God slot machine and now you're going to pull the handle and God's got to come through for you. No. He's saying your confidence that you're heard by God is this. He's made you his child. You're his child. He's done that. Now, give your requests to him. Ask in accordance with his will and you can be assured he's heard you. You can be assured of this. What confidence it gives. It would be like, you trying to ask something of Bill Gates. You know, I don't think any of you know Bill Gates. But if you do, I'd be happy to hear your story. Um, but imagine you're just like, hey, I just want to call Bill up and ask him you know, for a donation to my, my nonprofit organization. Well, do you have any, you know, you really think he's going to hear you? But what if you were one of his children? What if a child asked the father for something? There's going to be a different response there. That's the notion that, that John is drawing out of here, that because you have confidence as a child of God, you can have confidence in praying. You can know that he will hear you. How can a Christian know then what is in accordance with God's will? That's probably what you're asking. If the key there is asking in accordance with God's will, how do we know that? Because we want to have our prayers be aligned with God's will. Well, it's only when a life is oriented toward God through saving grace in Jesus Christ that a person can ask in accord with God's will. I know that was a mouthful. Let me say it simpler. You need to be a Christian in order to ask according to God's will. You have to be a Christian to know God's will. Unbelievers can't discern God's will the way Christians can. Um, Paul writes about it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. This is an unbelieving mind. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Well, then, where do we find God's will? How do we know what God's will is to ask in accordance with it? Well, the clearest place is the Holy Scriptures, God's Word. The answer may not satisfy you. You may say, well, come on, I've got questions like which job to take or where to live or what to do in a specific circumstance and there is no verse that says move to Alabama or something in here. So come on, help me out. Well, what is God's will in those specific circumstances? Again, the answer is found in God's word. I don't mean to frustrate us. What, I do, what I'm trying to do is drawing our attention to the limits of our responsibility before God in discerning his will. God has given us his will clearly as he intends us to understand it in his word. Remember, God is not becoming our personal butler. We are responsible to the revealed will of God as found in the scriptures, not to the secret will of God that he has kept as a mystery from us. So, for instance, we know it is God's will to be faithful in our marriage. We know it is God's will to be kind and tender-hearted toward each other. We know it is God's will to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And we know it is God's will to build up the church in Christian love. I could go on and on and on. You get the idea? Now let's take the clarity of that revealed will of God from the scriptures and apply it into the circumstances then of our life. Does that mean it takes all of the mystery out of living? No, <laughs> it does not. And I'm not diminishing the hardship of trying to discern what to do in those difficult decisions. I'm trying to assure you of the revealed will that God does give us to then live in confidence there. Trust him. Specifically, in the context of 1 John, what's in accordance with God's will? Well, we know it's God's will to pray for each other as we do war against sin. I'm going to prove that to you, okay? John develops this idea of praying as he continues on in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All right, aren't you, I, when I read this passage, I thought, oh, I'm so glad Pastor Steve let me preach this passage. These are simple things, right? 
When you read a verse like that, all of you are troubled because you're immediately asking, what is this sin that leads to death? This is a both encouraging section of Scripture and a troubling section. I'll start with the encouraging section, okay? John wants the Christian community to exercise their confidence in prayer by praying for one another in overcoming sin. That's what he's saying. You see it? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. What is that? That's praying. He's just talked about having confidence that God will hear your prayers. Why? Because you're a child of God. He listens to his children. How should we pray? What's according to his will? Pray that Christians would overcome sin. That's what you should pray. It's an example. So we are to pray for each other to overcome sin. This instruction, by the way, in this letter is marvelous and it's life-giving to the Christian community when we understand it in the context of when it was written. Do you remember, I know this is like weeks ago, months maybe, back in chapter 2 about the troubling occasion that occurred in this church family that, is, that he's writing to? You can flip back to chapter 2. You can find it beginning in verse 18 when he's writing about some who had previously called themselves Christians but they were no longer living as part of the Christian community. They had gone out. They had left. They had stopped following Jesus. To use John's words, they, they were now anti-Christ. They were not for Christ. They were anti-Christ. Chapter uh, 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This defection from the faith, from these people that had called themselves Christian would have caused concern and alarm and dismay in this Christian community. And how can they know if they really are a child of God? After all, people who had called themselves Christians had left the faith. John writes First John. He's writing to assure them so they can know they have eternal life. One response, so you can understand how there could be fear in the hearts of the Christians in that day, right? With that circumstance. One response to fear in our lives, right, is the insurance policy of isolation. Isn't that weird? It's what happens sometimes. We try to insulate ourselves from future misfortune by removing risk. We're not going to trust others. We're not going to be around others. We're just going to make it our own way. It kind of, and it really kind of pulls into the American kind of, you know, bootstrap, kind of get on with your life, go for it kind of mentality. But suspicious isolation is deadly to the Christian community. So John encourages his readers how to press through the fear they might have and he tells them, listen, you need to ask with confidence before God because you're his child. He's going to hear you when you ask according to his will. What's according to his will? Pray for each other when you see sin. That's what you should do. Not isolate yourselves from that. Not pull away, protect, self-isolate. No. Lean into it. How? Pray. Part of God's plan for the church family includes the prayers of the people in this room and those watching online for one another to do war against sin. Part of God's plan for this church family is for us to engage in praying for each other when we see sin in each other's lives. This isn't a theoretical prayer, by the way. It's not a theoretical knowledge. Notice how John writes. He says, Christians are seeing one another commit sin in verse 16. So it's not, I, you know, I'm suspecting or I think you kind of had a bad attitude. This is, this is something observable. Again, another objective, objective um, um, response which means we have to be living in close enough community and we have to be knowing each other and seeing each other in a close enough way that we see each other commit sin. So I just want to encourage us as a church family to keep leaning into messy, 
um, interfering community with each other. When I say interfering, interfering in the way that you have Christians that are going to look you in the eyes and say, stop sinning. And they're going to call you, I know, not weird like that. I was a little bit too bug-eyed, sorry. But they're going to get you know, right, right there and, and know you well enough to, to say stop and to be praying for us as we know that there is sin that is being committed. So I just want to keep encouraging us, lean into that, lean into that. If your disposition as a Christian is very kind of, kind of private in, in putting up walls of isolation, my, my encouragement to you is stop that because you are robbing yourself of one of the gifts of God's grace to you, which is the church family functioning in healthy, life-giving ways. Which also, this passage teaches us this, one of the right responses of Christians toward each other's sins is prayer. I know you're like, well, it seems obvious. Yes, when it's said, but it's not right. As it's been said, common sense is not common practice. John is wanting this to become common practice for the church. One of the responses that we should have with each other when we see sin is prayer. So here's my question. Is that your response? There's all sorts of other kinds of responses that can fill in that void when sin shows up in a Christian community in church. If you're prone to gossip, that's just one. Okay, there's lots of others that could be chosen. But if you're prone to gossip, really what, what, what 1 John is inviting us to do is replace that sin of gossip with prayer. A healthy church is a church that prays when it sees sin in itself. It prays for each other to overcome sin. Now, is praying about sin the only thing, the only Christian response? No, I want to balance what I've just said here this morning with the rest of what John has said um, uh, leading up to this. And I'm just going to ask you, remember, John has said a lot about a Christian and sin in this letter. All of that remains true at the same time as what? Pray for each other. So in summary, this letter is teaching them that Christians are known as people who do war against sin. I'm summarizing really large tracts of what John has said about a Christian and sin. Christians are known as people who do war against sin, not as Christians who are giving themselves over to sin, which is contradicting the, the heresies that were being taught in, in that day. And so based on the flow then and the order of this text, it seems that one of the ways that God enables his children to do war against sin is the prayers of the church family for each other. Isn't that marvelous? So who in this church family do you know well enough or do you interact with often enough to pray about specific sin? I know that's a rather odd question. I'm not asking you to all become the sin police. That is not what I'm asking. Do not become the, the, the sin bureau investigation here in, at Highlands Baptist Church. I'm asking for who do you just genuinely, genuinely know and be known by where they can see and observe, hey, sin, pray for you. Friend, that should not seem like a threat. It should warm our hearts with encouragement to know that I'm part of a church family that is going to pray for me when they see sin show up in my life. That is amazing. That's God's gift of grace. That's a healthy church. I think the parallel to this is something that Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 6 when he says it this way, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sin, right? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love each other as I have loved you. So where does that gentle uh, spirit of gentleness come from that, that Paul is writing about in Galatians 6? I think it could be the result of praying for each other. Praying for each other. It's very easy to respond with harsh words of, of condemnation, right, towards sin. 
But our spirits change when we pray, when we plead with God for a Christian brother and a sister against sin because God reveals our own lives that there's a tendency for sin in our own hearts. And so we pray not from a sense of pharisaical superiority, but from somebody who is a brother or sister in arms doing war against sin. So, sin that does not lead to death. That was the encouraging part, what I just said. We can have a church family that does what? Engages in praying for each other as sin shows up. Now the troubling part. Remember the, uh, the phrase that he says here, there is a sin that leads to death in verse 16? And Jared Epp, our elder, has volunteered to answer all questions about this after the service. And so I can just finish the sermon now. No, I'm teasing. What are we going to do with this? I think the answers are found in this text. I'm going to walk us through this. Look at verse 17. All right, so some of the questions that come to mind then is, what is the sin that leads to death? Another question that follows very quickly after that in our minds is often, how do we know if we've committed that? Should I be afraid of committing that sin? So look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. So however we understand a sin that does lead to death and a sin that does not lead to death, we must realize that all sin is consequential. So let's be clear about that. John is talk, not talking about legal sins and illegal sins, like, you know, like there's lies and white lies, okay, right? We kind of, he's not talking about that, like, yeah, there's sin that you not, not worry about, but the sin that leads to death, that's what you worry about. That's not what he's talking about. All sin, all at the same time is consequential. There is, though, a sin that leads to death, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. What does that mean? I think part of the answer is found by understanding what John means when he uses the word death. When you think of the word death, you probably think of the death, physical death. I believe that he's talking about eternal death. And the reason why he's not primarily talking about physical death is because that the whole reason of this letter is to give assurance and confidence in regards to eternal life, not physical life. And it seems only then consistent to understand the death that he's talking, talking about here with, with a, a sin that leads to death is interpreting death as spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God forever. The scriptures describe that as hell. So what then is the sin that leads to this eternal death? I think the answer is found as we look back at the words he just previously wrote before this section, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. You can glance back there, chapter 5, verse 11. It's some of the verses that um, Pastor Steve taught last week. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Another way to say does not have life would be to say this, has death. So I believe that the sin that leads to death is the sin of rejecting the God-man Jesus as God's gift for eternal life. I believe it is what he describes those that had defected from the Christian community in chapter 2 when he says in verse 18 that they are now anti-Christ. They are rejecting Christ. The sin that leads to eternal death is the sin of not having the Son of God as your Savior, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. So I believe that the sin that he's talking about here that leads to death is the sin of those that had been part of the, the saving community, that part of that faith community that had defected, had abandoned faith in Christ as God's sent one, as Messiah, and had drastically altered their relationship with sin. So they were living in, a, in pursuit of sin, rejecting God, uh, God's gift in Jesus, and they were preaching that heresy. That's refusing to embrace Jesus as Savior. Another way is the sin that leads anybody to eternal death is the sin of rejecting Christ. That's why the New Testament, the Scripture is constantly inviting people to repent and believe and accept Jesus. 
If you do not, if you refuse Christ, you will experience what the scriptures call eternal death. So back to John's argument. John wants his readers to pray for each other to overcome sin. The sin he has in mind is not the sin of rejecting Christ as Savior. He's not forbidding that kind of praying. That's what he's talking about at the end of verse 16. His aim is for Christians to pray for one another to overcome sin. So verse 18 is giving his readers confidence to pray like that. We know it is God's will that Christians not be people characterized by abandonment to sin because of verse 18. You see, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is wonderful news. Verse 18, wonderful news. If you're born of God, you are protected by God. And the protection is specific so that the evil one cannot harm you. And that harm is talking about this in the spiritual way, I, re, I believe, in regards to eternal death. He cannot touch you that way. The champion that we all need and want most is given to us by God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who protects all who are born of God from the evil. John recorded Jesus' words like this in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. I think a passage in 1 Corinthians that might help us understand, you know, what way does the evil one harm? How is God, how is God protecting us spiritually from that? I believe one way that's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says it this way, In their case, the God of this world, the evil one, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To what effect? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The blinding power of the evil one cannot be exercised against those who are born of God in that way because they're protected by Jesus. This is wonderful news. This gives Christians assurance that they have eternal life. Assurance that they will be kept in eternal life. Why? Because of the keeping power of Jesus. That's why. The one in whom you believe, the one in whom you confess is a champion like this. The devil can throw all sorts of, hurl all sorts of accusations and insults, but you are in this protective care, the guarding protection of Christ. So then, this is good news. What does that do? It should encourage us to pray for one another when sin shows up. Why? Because we want, we want that person, that brother, that sister who is experiencing sin to understand and experience the protection of God in even greater ways. So then, we pray for one another. By the way, all this talk about being born again, being born of God, being protected from eternal death. Do you know Jesus like this? Have you been born of God? Do you understand? Have you embraced God's gift to you in Jesus, the, the guilt that you bear for your sin? When you lay at night before you go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning, those quiet moments of life when the world is kind of just pressed away and you're wondering about what's next when you're wondering about how are all the wrongs in the world and the ones you've added to on that list, how are they all going to be made right? What is your answer? What's your strategy? Just pretending there is no God? I don't think that's satisfactory to you because where does your sense of justice come from then? You want, you want justice to be given except you're concerned about the justice you know you deserve. What's your solution? First John is a letter that's written to point people back to the confidence that is found in Christ as God's substitute for sinners. Jesus took upon himself all of the guilt and the shame and the penalty of our sin so that all who would embrace him, who would believe in him, would be given forgiveness 
The forgiveness was purchased by Jesus. Would you receive the forgiveness he purchased? Would you claim it as your own, embrace him so that you would be under his forgiveness, be made his child so that you can enjoy God forever? That's the gospel that he's been preaching, that he's been writing about all along in this book that we can have confidence that we know. If you are not someone who knows God that way in Jesus, this would be our invitation to know him that way. We would want you to keep exploring this more. Talk to the person that you and invited you. If you're like, I, nobody invited me, I'm just here, then keep coming because we would love to have an opportunity to speak with you more about this so that you can be some of the people that are like John is writing to. You can know that you have eternal life. In verse 19, we find a biblical worldview. The scriptures understand all people are in one of two categories. Those who are in the protective power of God through Jesus Christ and those who are under the power of the evil one because they do not embrace Christ. You see verse 19? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Which category are you in? We need to take John's description of the world in verse 19 to heart. Which, by the way, that's another reason why he would write words like in chapter 2, in verse 15. You can glance back there when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. God, John, why are you being so nitpicky, so, you know, you know sensational? Because... Here in chapter 5, he's, he's reminding his readers the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The Apostle Paul agrees with John. In Ephesians chapter 2, he describes it this way, that we were people who once walked following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or Colossians chapter 1, when he says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. These are sweeping statements categorizing how the scriptures view the world, those that are in the kingdom of light or those that are in the kingdom of darkness. In Jesus, your relationship with Jesus determines which one you're in. I wonder how you respond to that reality. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Does it discourage you? You're like, I'm so glad I got up, came on a Sunday morning so the pastor could say, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Good luck as you all leave. Does it fill you with anxiety? What hope do Christians supposed to have? I mean, really, John, come on. You're supposed to encourage us. And he's closing a letter with those types of words. Keep reading. Look at verse 20. And we know, here it is again, more of what we know. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. To which result? What ends? So that we may know, there it is again, Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Jesus has come into the world, the world that lies in the power of the evil one. Think of it like this. Jesus has come. He went behind enemy lines and he's done the work of a saboteur. That's what Jesus did. And his work of sabotage, it so sabotaged the evil one's rule in, in such a decisive way. It's so decisive that it's just a matter of time before the rule of the evil one is going to come to an end. It's unraveling. It doesn't look like it, but it is. Ultimately, it's going to unravel. And Jesus, this saboteur who went behind enemy lines, is going to make all things new. What comfort do you have then as a Christian? Verse 20. We may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. That is where Christians are. That is our experience of eternal life. So John continues his campaign of knowledge by reminding his readers more about what we know. But the aim of John's reminder is not just about some dusty knowledge. His aim of reminding us of what we know is more than mere knowledge. It is, look at verse 20, we know him who is true. There's a personal pronoun there. We are in him who is true. There is no one better to know than Jesus. He protects. 
He guards. He keeps. He forgives. He redeems. He gives mercy. He intercedes for you now. He's your advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1, right? Even when you do sin, what? You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He took the wrath of God for you. This is the one that we are in. So then the whole world is in the power of the evil one, yes, but you are in the power of Jesus. So then, it sounds very familiar to to the words of Christ in John 17 when it talks about eternal life, not just being this knowledge that we have in our heads, but it's this. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they know you. John says him, right? Same person. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you? Well, finally we come to verse 21. And while I do this, I will ask the music team to come and get in place. Verse 21, it's kind of one of those words, those, those word, uh, phrases that seem a little out of place, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like, where did that pop in, John? It seems odd. Like, if we had this as a, as a benediction, which we've done before, did it seem odd? When he talks about Jesus Christ, you're in him, he's true God, eternal life, keep yourselves from idols. He's done. Saying you know God while hating Christians would be an idol. What is an idol? Really, it's any of the falsehoods that John has corrected in this letter so far. Calling yourself a Christian while living in pursuit of sin, that's an idol. Saying Jesus is not God is an idol. Saying you can, you can know God while hating Christians, that's an idol. And so John concludes with one summary statement that pulls all the strands of truth that he's given in this letter into one direct sniper bullet of truth. Keep yourselves from idols. And all this is to give us this confidence. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray.